Back to the Optimism Vaccine Podcast, the 83rd most popular film podcast in the UK. Jack Eason, uh, the British maybe not so bad. Oh, I mean, they they have their uses. <laughs> How's your car doing, buddy? Uh, <laughs> oh man, you know what you shouldn't do with our podcast? You shouldn't look at your phone while driving and listening to it. Because, uh, I don't know, some teenager was looking at her phone and totaled my parked car over the weekend. Mm. So, have yeah, you, that's fun. Have you considered maybe, like, like just melting your flesh into the steel and becoming, like, a giant metal rolling phallus that's going to, like, conquer the streets of Chicago? I think that would be an excellent thing to do with a Kia Rio. Yeah. Of all the so, brands of cars, that's... Probably one of the funniest you could do that. With. It's it's probably the most phallic car you could possibly get your hands on, I'd imagine. Like, nothing oh. screams masculinity like that beast revving that oh, little man. engine. It's like 90 horsepower, like, chugging down the road. Absolutely. I, I used to drive, many, many years ago, I drove a 2004 Kia Rio. And my favorite thing about it was, you know, reliable car, not a lot of bells and whistles got me around but best thing was the horn when you beeped it it sounded like the road runner and there were numerous occasions where i would beep at people for various reasons out of anger and they would just laugh at me because it was the, <laughs> the worst sounding fucking horn imaginable I'm, it's hard to get road rage and someone in a kia for a variety of reasons and the yeah. little guy is just like you cut me off asshole bloop, bloop. Like, oh boy, that's tough. <laughs> I'm so chill on the road, I don't even remember what the horn sounds like. I never use it. I'm just Typical. I'm just zen on the road. Maybe I'm just uh, the one cutting people off. That could be it, too. The laid-back Irishman. Typical. Typical. Yeah, that's it. Now, Jake, I got a question for you next. Uh, sure. We originally were going to record this podcast on Sunday before Jack's uh, heavy finger quotes car incident do you think he was blowing us off to watch Hamilton? Oh, yeah. And I bet you he won't do it one last time. hey Yeah, there you go. Uh, yeah, I just, like the hit song from Hamilton. Uh, that's, that's, that's I legit hit, don't even know that. I know nothing about Hamilton. Uh, bullshit, Jack. You're a lying dog-faced pony soldier. Sorry. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the facts, Jack. I'm sorry. Uh, All right. But, uh, but hey, you know, you know what they say, Steve? After you do 100 episodes of your podcast, it's all uphill from here. <laughs> that's a bunch of malarkey. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I think <laughs> Jack is full of shit. Obviously, he was watching Hamilton. And I, I tried to watch it, and I, I don't think I get it. I don't understand the difference between Hamilton's music and the Super Bowl shuffle, which that seems problematic to me, seeing as how, you know, the music is so acclaimed. It just that the whole thing just sounds like the fucking Super Bowl shuffle. Jack, do you even know what the Super Bowl shuffle is? This is an important cultural. Also, also going to bleed the fifth and that taking my God given American rights. You, you are a Chicago resident, are you not? I, t- I certainly pay enough for it, yeah. Okay, well, you, you, need to, you need to watch <laughs> the Super Bowl show. I've got a fucking city sticker coming for a car that no longer runs, so, yeah, <laughs> fantastic. It's like, okay, so when the Chicago Bears were on, they had, like, a really good season, and before they even won the Super Bowl in 1985, in the offseason, they recorded a rap song that's, like, six minutes long. It's way too fucking Holy long, shit. and all the players <laughs> rap. But they're all like every single line is just the the hokiest shit imaginable. That's- it's just like, my name is the Magic Man. <laughs> yes, that's right. I'm Mike McMahon. Throw a football as far as I can. Like that's that's all they fucking do. <laughs> that that and, sounds and they, exactly like Hamilton to me. Everything I understand yeah, about Hamilton. Hamilton, that's it. That's it. See, it's just people announcing what their name is and the shit that they do. That's what Hamilton's about. Uh, Myros, you're, you're listening right now. You're not on this episode, but you're producing. So why don't you drop in uh, the Super Bowl shuffle so people know that it's actually just Hamilton. We are the bears, shuffling crew, shuffling on down, doing it for you. We're so bad, we know we're good. Blowing your mind like we knew we would. You know we're 
they call me sweetness and I like to dance. Running the ball is like Mickey Moore Mance. We had the goal since training camp to give Chicago a Super Bowl champ. And we're not doing this because we're greedy. The Bears are doing it to feed the needy. We didn't come here to look for trouble. We just come here to do the Super Bowl show. That's good. Are there any other like beloved films or cultural institutions that we can mock real quick before we get into the meat of the podcast? Oh, okay, we're good. That's fine. Uh, I'm sure we'll find Kimbo one. sucks. No, that's fair. I don't think anybody's going to complain yeah. about that one. A lot of people shrugging and nodding their heads. All right, yeah. gentlemen. Uh, well, we are undertaking another big podcast project because you know, I was saying to myself, the boys enjoyed the Whoopathon so much. What could we do that could kind of get us on the same level as, as Whoopi again? Something that'll that'll make you happy. And I figured the closest thing we had to Whoopi Goldberg was uh, the, the films of Shinya Tsukamoto, right? And you'll be glad! Uh, <laughs> I promise that's the only Whoopi drop I play for the duration of the show. I, I promise. I don't believe you. you. I don't believe me either, but I'm going to say <laughs> for the next five minutes, it'll probably be the only Whoopi drop that I play. Uh, so yeah. Shinya Tsukamoto, <laughs> for people who aren't familiar with his work, uh, we're gonna we're gonna put you in the optimism vaccine time machine. We're gonna go back to the 1980s. Shinya Sukumoto is a guy with a Super 8 camera, and he is living in a very bizarre, kind of shitty film and economic environment in Japan. So around this time, the Japanese housing market is crashing. There's a, a giant stock market bubble, and most of the Japanese uh, movie studios are on the verge of bankruptcy. They're not doing shit. And on top of that, the Japanese film industry is kind of suffering as well because you're starting to get more uh, Western films coming over to Japan and taking up box office space. So they're kind of fucked. Uh, so there's no money. And Japanese cinema is kind of suffering because of this. So our buddy with the Super 8 camera said, ah, you know, what if I do some really fucked up shit with uh, drill penises and make a few movies? And here we are. The films of Shinya Tsukamoto. Is that, a, is that a good enough introduction to his work, you think? Oh, that's what that drill was. Okay. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's a distended vagina, but I was going with drill penis for the metaphor. I think, I think it's, even, it's even funnier when we bear in mind that Tsukamoto quit. A, you appeared to be doing pretty well in an advertising job. Like, he flew to L.A. to direct a like, Nikon or Kodak ad with uh, LaToya Jackson, which you can find on YouTube. Um. You know, he, he he was a proper ad man, and then he decided he would make these frankly insane amateur and completely independent films, like stridently independent. He does all the financing, everything himself, and got yeah. kicked out of his house by his parents because <laughs> they were like, what are you doing? Uh, <laughs> and now and now, many years later, here here we are discussing his work. Yeah. I mean, we talked about Steve. I, yeah, that's I'm gonna have to. Well, hopefully we can we can pass along this information to one Stephen Grew, who is uh, kind of toiling away in the in the <laughs> same in the same mold. But I mean, talking about Grew, this is this is the same type of filmmaker in the sense that when we say he did everything independently, literally did everything independently. He he wrote, he directed, he financed the whole thing. Okay, and when he was making his first proper feature length film, uh, Tetsuo the Iron Man he actually had the crew just stay in his house for like 18 months and he would work them like dogs day and night to the point where they, they basically had like a mutiny and threatened him uh, and he didn't think he was going to be able to finish the film. But before he even well, started Steve, on T Tetsuo Steve, proper, he actually... Yeah, go ahead. No, I'm just, I'm just saying, I think it's even funnier that because I think he had all of them stay at Kai Fujiwara's house. <laughs> oh, not, not, not his even house. His, yeah, not his. No, their house, which apparently was uh, earmarked for demolition. So the building <laughs> was mostly abandoned. So they just hung out there and made, I think, two films. I think they did The Adventure of the Denji Kozu, which was like a warm-up, shorter Super 8 film, and then mm -hmm. Tetsuo, and just hung out in a, yeah, set-for-demolition apartment and had a lot of falling out. So I think tensions reached, because it were like two years, I think, of production yeah, yeah. time. Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, I love you guys, but if you were like, okay, we're going to do this podcast project, but Steve, you have to live in an abandoned building for 18 months, that would be a little upsetting for me. I don't think I'd be able to handle that. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. But he, uh, before that, you mentioned the short that he did prior to Tetsuo, and then he also did kind of a dry run on Tetsuo as well, right? 
He did, yeah. Uh, his first, uh, he made like Super 8 films throughout his childhood and stuff, but his first kind of major project, I suppose, kind of starting off uh, was The Phantom of Regular Size, which is really an experimental film that would become like Tetsuo later on. Um, you can find that on YouTube as well. It's never been commercially released because he used a bunch of music that he was never going to be able to afford the rights to. Um, but yeah, like an interesting little film and it kind of was the dry run for that. And then after Phantom of Regular Size, which kind of convinced him he could make a film, he then turned his attention to The Adventures of Denshu Kozo, which is a, a very strange film about metallic vampires who take over Tokyo and uh, a man a, a man with a electrical pylon sticking out of his back just as like a congenital birth defect is the only man who can save the world and travels through time to do so and uh, it's very similar in aesthetic to Tetsuo though it's in color it's a really like it's it's a really impressive film considering the fact it was made with pretty much no money and made you know like with just a bunch of friends experimenting with Super 8 film um but yeah it's 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 a uh, kind of a really impressive film. It won several awards um, at kind of small, low-budget film festivals in Japan, really got some notice from that and really gave him the encouragement to go big and bump himself all the way up to 16mm to, to shoot Tetsuo. Yeah. Fancy so, pants. That's all it. Right, well, okay, so we, we've got a little bit of background here, but Jake, maybe you can help me out. What, <laughs> what the fuck is Tetsuo the Iron Man? Good luck, Jake. Well, <laughs> okay. Well, uh, where to begin? I mean, I hate to describe one work by comparing it to two other works, but it is very much uh, <laughs> Eraserhead by the way of David Cronenberg. There's a Dave over here. That's, yeah. that's the letterbox review, baby. Dip it in bronze. <laughs> no, um... Tetsuo the Iron Man is 67 minutes of the most batshit cinema you'll ever see, I guess you could say. Um, it's a it's a disruption of the, the quotidian. It's it's uh, it's all style. It's incredible. It's uh, it's about a metal fetishist battling uh, just an everyman accountant who turn into these uh, metal wielding and metal transforming monsters. Um yeah, that's uh, I don't know. That's the, that's the that's the thrust of it, so to speak. So much thrusting. There's a lot yeah. of thrusting in this movie. <laughs> Thank you. That pun was indeed intended. Um, but Sean, yeah, no, yeah, it's it's crazy. It's crazy times. Sean, I, I think this is this is your first time watching Tetsuo, right? You you had not previously seen his work. Yeah. No. I. I, I I hadn't seen any Sukumoto, and I uh, I really didn't know what I was getting into. Like I had kind of, I had seen covers of various films of his throughout the years, and didn't really know that you know I didn't know that uh, Tetsuo was by the same guy who did Vital, who did the same thing as A Snake of June. Um, so these were all just sort of like you know ephemeral to me, and so this is the first time really putting it together. Um, but I, I didn't really know what kind of filmmaking I was getting into. Um, <laughs> and I watched uh, all three of these movies back, like literally one after another uh, on a weekend morning. And uh, I just kind of wanted to like put my brain on ice afterwards. Sarah, are you okay? That doesn't, yeah, that's a lot, <laughs> man. No, I mean, I, w one thing that is cool about them in that regard is that there's very little dialogue, especially in the Tetsuos. So it's kind of just like, it, it, I mean, it's just taking in images, but it's still like so overwhelming sometimes. Um, I mean, it's nice that that they're like eighty minutes, but uh, or sixty-seven, you know, to eighty-seven. But um, his editing style is what I kind of came away with as like the most unique thing. Uh, mm. It's just like so chaotic. Um, the, you, you just don't know what's like. I I I, I think. Um, I think about the there's like a true foe quote about Citizen Kane about how he watched it like a million times and like four like literally like 400 times and then didn't know like he couldn't tell you each time he sat down like what the next scene was going to be. Um, I feel like you could do that with Tetsuo like just have no idea what was what the order was. Definitely. Um, it's interesting you say it's like a silent film because it actually Tetsuo traveled somewhat internationally and it played at like film festivals in Italy and it played unsubtitled 
Um, and it, and I think it even it may have even won an award. I think it was the fantastic, fantastic fest in Italy. It won the top award there, unsubtitled. So wow. it really, so it really ran. It does play as a silent film almost, um, or certain the dialogue is somewhat inconsequential until you get to like the really insane homoerotic stuff at the end, which I guess is kind of interesting in and of itself. But I, you know, I guess the visuals translated it too. It's about two dudes bonding, literally. Um, yeah. but yeah it's, it's, it's about hanging out with your boys really what it comes down yeah, to yeah yeah Saturdays for the boys uh, to go and turn to metal whatever <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I think pointing out the editing is it's a really good way to to break into whatever Tsukamoto's style is because it, it is so chaotic but it's it's really consistent in its chaos you know so like mm-hmm. you said it's it's hard to to remember one moment to the next, but it gets into this incredible rhythm that kind of blends with the music and, and the visuals. And it's unlike anything really like you can, you can compare this to the work of Cronenberg with the body horror stuff, or you can be like, Oh, David Lynch, eraser head. But this is a totally different beast at the end of the yeah. day. And yeah. I, I think it's also kind of heightened because I mean, probably at the time due to budget constraints, but also this is something that, that would stay consistent throughout his career. A lot of handheld work. And we're not talking like steady cam shit here. It's just straight up holding a camera, shoving it in your face. And again, it just it just adds to the overall uneasiness of the whole film. It's it's very anxiety inducing the way this anxiety, movie assaults you. It's like hyper kinetic. I mean, I think would probably be the best. Yeah. Like it, there's there are virtually no scenes of stillness. And Tsukamoto uses stop motion and kind of does lo- with stop motion live action stuff like with people where he, you know, kind of like when the, a lot of the movement in the film is people just like jetting down pathways in suburban Tokyo and it's kind of frames are missing. It's just a collage of different of them moving, you know, at different points along the way that just kind of are all edited together like a flick book. And um, yeah, it, it's it's kind of like just such a, I mean, to me, this is kind of like, whatever you think punk is, this is a film capturing that same idea. It is kind of disregards any kind of notions or best practices and just sort of cannons off into its own kind of world. And mm-hmm. I mean, cyberpunk is obviously is like the uh, kind of a key touchstone to everything. Mm-hmm. This, every consideration of this film, it's a kind of a, a marriage, but also a, a, an anxiety of technology of, uh, the body falling away or becoming less useful, um, machinery, metal becoming superimposed on the body, taking its place, etc. I mean, all of these kind of themes are, you know, and anything you've watched like Ghost in the Shell or Blade Runner, or, you know, other key cyberpunk texts. This is this is a key cyberpunk text, effectively. Yeah. And I think what Tsukamoto does too is, especially compared to say Blade Runner or other, you know, Touchstone. Uh, cyberpunk text he takes everything to just the absolute extreme degree so this is a movie where it's it's about like the destruction of literally everything and that's the body like the self your identity and Mm -hmm. eventually that moves forward into you know the destruction of the entire world around you which is in this case it's it's Tokyo, but it's the way that it's it's shot and portrayed. It feels almost otherworldly, you know. Like it's it's not the big skyscrapers in the city that you're used to seeing. It just feels barren and industrial, and all that there is is this handful of characters and and all the twisted metal and gore that's spewing out everywhere. And there's no explanation either, which I think is a uh, like we we start with a metal fetishist who's played by Tsukamoto himself. Um, in just literally hacking open his own thigh to stick a, a rod of metal in there, effectively to see what will happen, I guess, while he's surrounded by cutouts of, of athletes, um, I guess giving this kind of unusual sense of um, the opaque physical condition that would then, <laughs> he's moving to the next level, uh, no longer, you know, flesh and blood, something else. Um, but of course, sticking a rod of metal in your your leg doesn't doesn't actually uh, work. It's bad. Oh shit! And so and <laughs> so he gets infected and he gets very scared and he runs off and he gets hit by a car. I mean, this is about as much narrative as you can put together. He gets hit by a car. In that car is the is Tetsuo played by Tomoro Taguchi, 
and his uh, girlfriend, Kei Fujiwara, um, and they effectively, uh, they dispose the body. This is kind of alluded to later on. They obviously, they, they run him over and they're very scared and they get rid of him. Although I say they're very scared, but then they're so aroused, I guess, from their roused from their, their suburban. Tetsuo is very obviously kind of a salary man, some kind of white-collar guy, and he, he and his girlfriend have sex, uh, having dumped the body, and <laughs> the metal fetishist can see this, he's not dead. Um, and then from there, somehow, for reasons unexplained, Tetsuo finds himself changing to metal. Uh, and thus kind of and then everything else from there is just kind of like a fever dream he feels the city is closing in on him he's chased by another woman who's transforming into metal is attacked by her we don't really know where dreams or reality intermingle or if they even matter at this point and then he ends up killing his girlfriend because he's transforming into metal and there's the infamous drill penis sequence um uh, yeah and then penis. yeah f- fantastic uh you know where else are you gonna find that um, not many places. There's an anime, Dead Leaves, that also has a drill penis, and I'm pretty sure they just lifted it from this. So, uh, you know, and from there, the the metal fetishists and Tetsuo do battle, and this is um kind of plays in on one of Tetsuo's or one of Sukamoto's kind of themes, which is the Phantom of Regular Size. He he formed an independent theater group called the Kaiju Theater, and his his kind of predilection, I guess, is the idea of these monsters, but they weren't like giant monsters like Gamera or Godzilla or anything like that. They, they're just, they're men size effectively and they are transforming and bringing about destruction but on a kind of a, a man-sized level. So mm-hmm. there's some kind of a, a change of format within that and that's kind of what he's realizing here because as you say, it, it eventually topples out and, and destroys the city. Um but yeah, it kind of the the narrative is pretty easy to put together without subtitles. Obviously, it kind of plays out, but then everything else is sort of just happens. It's just kind of an anxiety, a tension between uh, kind of I guess muted white collar, desensitized kind of urban existence and the the mechanical age. And I, I you know, and I suppose it's kind of interesting. This is kind of like Tetsuo is coming at the end of the mechanical age, really. Uh, something we'll talk about with Tetsuo 2, which is more clear about it's kind of the, the shift from uh, kind of manufacturing to information as an age. But it's kind of interesting. This is the rise of machinery, but it's in the late 80s, where it really was the rise of computers. So it's yeah. there, there's some kind of an unusual tension there. Uh, Tetsuo does not turn into a computer. Uh, that would be a very different film. That would be, <laughs> I don't know, Electric Dreams, I guess. <laughs> That's what the data man. That's interesting. I mean, it um, it does, I guess, in one sense, appropriately, like feel divorced from contemporaneous like placement. You know, um, like doesn't feel like oh, this must have been a, a real comment on the time it was in. Um, it just kind of feels like a raw nerve uh, that comes like straight out of Sukumoto's brain. Yeah, it's yeah. it's just deeply upsetting. Like, <laughs> if, if if you want a film that'll just evoke strong emotion, which in this case is like anxiety and sweating, uh, this is this is a good place to start. And I kind of mentioned how the music drives all the action in this, especially once it it picks up uh, post car crash. But the music is really what ties this together. It's it's incredible it's amazing. Stuff. Yeah, so I'm going to play a little clip of this for you guys. So just to get an idea. The soundboard swallowed Steve. Yeah, he's, he's becoming Tetsuo. He, he, it, it yeah, was it swallowed in stop motion. It like the wires just came out and took him in. It was only a matter of time. I Flea am the machine. The... <laughs> he's a Flea machine too close now. That's on. That was removed. But yeah, no, that like that industrial soundtrack is it's just killer. Um, and Jack, you tweeted or said something that like it's it's basically the track that scores over the the Blu-ray menu of the new Sukamoto box set, which you should all run out and grab. Um, and yeah, I could just listen to that thing on a loop. It's 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 just a 
it's orgasmically good. Yeah, it gives you a very good sense of like the pace. It, like just imagine editing pictures to that soundtrack. <laughs> like yeah, it's yeah. just frenetic and aggressive and abrasive um, in all the best possible ways. And that was, of course, scored by Chewie Chikawa, who um, I don't know how Tsukamoto met him originally. Um, mm. Unfortunately, I think he I think he died. Uh, I'm, I don't have info in front of me. I think he died after like in the mid 90s so Jeez. they worked together i think on only three films as i recall maybe four maybe with bullet ballet as well but um yeah i mean hard to overstate how important that music was to the aesthetic of the tetsuo films particularly um real industrial music well it started off as real industrial music apparently uh, originally ishikawa was like very concerned with only using like machinery to make the noise and that kind of like led him down a kind of maybe a dead end and he realized he could maybe loosen the definition a little bit and bring in some electronic elements to kind of like tie it together but it still mostly just sounds like someone just smashing his shit together yeah that's pretty much it. it's just like a the pulsing industrial beat and then it's you didn't get a lot of it in the clip that i played but there's there's all these parts too where it's it's literally just <laughs> clanging and and steam noises and it's just all kinds of just horrible industrial noise that works really well with the movie so yeah it's this is a complete sensory overload experience and if, if you haven't had a chance to watch Setsuo yet uh, it's it's like an hour long barely like it's it's a super short movie it's something that everyone should watch at least once uh once might be enough for some people because it's it's intense but yeah, well, well, it's, it's not a think, 67 minutes. It is not a casual sit. You got to no. kind of brace yourself. You are yourself fully engaged. It is exhausting. <laughs> when I was watching, I was thinking about how I think all of, had all of you seen it before? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, a long time ago. Yeah, and it seemed like all of you hadn't seen it in a long time and um, like, you know, a decade plus. And I was watching it and I was thinking like, uh, it's that type of movie that you you watch and you go, I don't think I'll be watching that much. But then like, you know, 12 years down the line, you know, a lot of uh, growing and whatever, just aging. And then you go, okay, yeah, I kind of wonder what that feels like to watch right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was weird for me because when I when I watched this originally, I was, I was probably in my early 20s and it just, it didn't work for me. It was just too much. I, I couldn't, I couldn't handle it. And this time around, I felt like I was able to kind of wrap my head around it a bit more. But I'm glad that I went back and revisited it because, yeah, it's it's an incredible piece of work. I think I think it's good to stay. I mean, we talk about how chaotic and abrasive it is, but also, I mean, it's a phenomenally accomplished project considering its budget level. Um, the fact that this was pretty much, you know, just put together on some grant money, I think, I guess some, you know, some money Tsukamoto had won from film festivals for his previous film, and then just whatever else he could gather together in pooling resources. I mean, the the photography on this, it's like 16mm high contrast black and white. It's just smoke and steam and texture, the metal, the the kind of products he's made. I mean, Tsukamoto worked on a lot of this stuff himself. Um, you know, a lot of the, the metal props and stuff. And I'm like, he must have just been <laughs> cruising junkyards, pulling pieces out to make these armatures and like unusual, mm-hmm. like special effects details. It like, I mean, it really, a razor head is a very, a very good touchstone in terms of that. It was a film that I feel like the, the real expense of it was just time and labor. It was just a few people investing everything, a few very gifted, talented people investing everything to get it all up on the screen um, with minimal money and resources otherwise. And the, the effect is kind of otherworldly. You know, it, it really is, like you say, it's a film that's worth watching just because, frankly, there's nothing else like it. You can, I mean, there's a few that came after, you know, um, films like Rubber's Lover and, uh, the, you know, there's a few other like Japanese films that have something of a similar vibe, but they're all clearly indebted to this. And then this film, as much as I could say, it, it it's a little like a razor head. It's also nothing like a razor head in its own way. Um, yeah. it's, yeah, it's just like kind of, yeah, give it, a, it's worth looking at just to see how you react to the experience. Yeah, it's yeah. it's so singular and extremely influence, influ, yeah, influential on 90s Japanese independent cinema. 
Uh, you mentioned Rubber's Lover, so that director, uh, Shozen Fukai, I think is his last name. He also did 964 Pinocchio, which is very similar to Tetsuo in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, Gaikuru uh, Ishii, he did... Roberto uh, Benini in that? Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's the one. <laughs> There's a uh, lot of stuff in that movie. That's, that's another a lot one of, I that's haven't... Good. That's another yeah. movie I haven't seen in like 15 plus years, but I still remember bits of it and go like, what the fuck were they thinking? Yeah. Which, your, you know. Your standard movie about a deactivated sex doll in Japan and there's some stuff going on. Uh, but yeah, uh, Gakiru Ishii, who, he did Electric Dragon, 80,000 Volts, uh, which is, I guess, out of all the, the movies out there that are super indebted to Tetsuo, it's probably the best non-Tetsuo movie. Uh, pretty pretty interesting. Uh, but yeah, there's just there's a shitload of the stuff, and even if you look into more contemporary things like guys like uh, Yadai Yamaguchi who did Yakuza Weapon and Meatball Machine and a bunch of other stuff, all of these directors are totally indebted. Even Takashi Miike, to a certain degree, same thing. Just the frenetic style and the extreme violence and uh, the the obsession with the destruction of the self. Uh, yeah, all of this comes from from Sukumoto. So, uh, mm-hmm. all right, well. Before we, we get to Tetsuo 2, we mentioned, you know, Sukumoto is this very, very independent filmmaker. He's always been that way. He's, he's big into just financing his own films and uh, directing, producing, writing, doing everything. But, you know, after he makes this acclaimed film, he goes out and he wants to make Tetsuo 2 because, you know, why not? And he has a little trouble <laughs> finding... Uh, the means to to make it, and he's he's having issues trying to raise funds, so he ends up doing a, a quick studio job. So he makes uh, Haruku the Goblin, uh, which is not a movie we're going to talk about, but another interesting film. And he finally he finally makes it to Tetsuo Two Body Hammer, which is interesting because it is an entirely different beast, like clearly cut from the same cloth, but. Uh, what he does here with still not much of a budget is equally impressive to me. Uh, and, and this one seems to deal a lot more with the, the broader social things that he doesn't really wrestle with as much in the original Tetsuo. And it kind of turns Tokyo as this like faceless, corporate, bland skyscraper city into a character unto itself. And... Fuck, man, this one is way better than I remember it being when I saw it like 10 years ago. Yeah, I'd say the same on that. Cause, and I think I, like Tetsuo 2, I think its big, its big stumbling block is Tetsuo, the first film. It's really difficult yeah. to adjust expectations coming out of that. And this yeah. film is in color and it's, it's, it's certainly... It's so much more open just as like is. a canvas. Mm. It is. And it's, it's still, I mean, it's still abrasive and, and frenetic and kinetic, but it is not as much so as the first Tetsuo. It kind of moves in a slightly different direction. It has a much more uh, developed storyline while still being largely, I think, kind of channeled by kind of gut feeling. It's not, you know, it's not driven yeah. by logic, but it's, it has right. more of a story. Well, and yeah, you can't tell if it's like convoluted. Like it kind of feels like that sometimes because at least it did for me, like because uh, I wasn't sure exactly what was going on. But but I think a better way to put it is that way that it is sort of like has its own internal logic rather than uh, sort of this, um, you know, narrative A to B type of thing. It kind of is. Uh, I, I don't know. It's it's uh, it's a sensory experience. Yeah. And this is another movie too, where the music is so important to just the the mood of the film and the way that it's cut. And it, it's also cool because it's demonstrably different from the the music in Tetsuo. So Tetsuo is this very primitive industrial soundtrack, and in Tetsuo too, we get more of this. So even even more frantic, but. To me, it sounds like, I don't know, it kind of sounds like a Mega Man X box, boss fight. Like, <laughs> it's just, just. I'm just going to drop in here and say, I said earlier that Shuichikawa died soon after, but he did not. I don't know where I got that idea from. So he worked on a bunch of Tsukamoto films, uh, which is good news because I'm planning to revisit all of them. So I'm looking forward to hearing what kind yeah. of insane noise he produced for them. <laughs> 
But anyhow, yeah, it's it's a, a distinctly different, like I say, it, it sounds like a video game almost. And then the film has so many of these just kind of random chases and rescue. Like it's Tetsuo again, played by Tomoro Taguchi, the same guy. Um, and he is, uh, he, he's kind of got a wife and a child, a young child. And uh, these skinheads just keep kidnapping his child. It's like a weird, like almost like a joke that they just, they keep kidnapping his kid when they're out in public and he chases them and they like eventually just hand his kid back, but only after like reminding him of how weak and pathetic he is, um, you know. But they're, but they're yeah, trying they, to get him into his uh, his beefcake army. That's what they're trying to, to get him yeah, to join. Yeah, yeah, that's true because they are part of a beefcake army, again, run by uh, Shinya Tsukamoto, <laughs> who uh, has a, literally can shoot people with his gun fingers. Um, yeah, yeah, like a literal handgun, but it's <laughs> it's literally just a hand. But he, when he does his gun fingers, people actually die because they get a bullet wound. Because um, why not? And yeah, it, it's it's. I mean, this is a, a great, and this one ties in very much, I guess, with the next with Tokyo Fist as well. That this is very clearly, I think, a film about male insecurity. Um, it, it's a film about a salary man who feels like he's not able to protect his family. That he's he's um, suppressed all of his kind of inherently masculine uh, urges to kind of create this kind of st- uh, sterile living environment. Their apartment is, you know, very nice and clean and tidy. The whole film is kind of shot through this in this blue filter, um, you know, kind of very cold city uh, kind of a feel, which is then permeated in certain scenes by a red filter that it, it literally on screen competes, like at certain points, different parts of the screen are filtered between those two different color spectrums um and he is he he is driven by this insecurity to uh activate this nascent part of his body which is kind of a plot twist uh sean talked about you know it, this feels kind of convoluted almost compared to tetsuo because it actually has some like plot twists there's this the 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 beefcake army have developed this gun that they can shoot people with which i don't know if it starts or it just F increases the transformation of becoming a metal man, of becoming, you know, some some kind of like cyborg entity. Um, and they shoot uh they they shoot Tetsuo with this, and they pick him specifically because he's a meek subject. They, they that's kind of the irony of it. They pick the the guys picked him and shot him because they figured he was safe, even if he becomes very enraged and, and kind of pumped up by this this experiment, he'll still be easy to contain. Um, and then it turns out in a, in a great plot twist, it turns out actually uh, his little pocket calculator, pocket translator computer uh, blocked it and he was never shot at all. And so his, his <laughs> transformation is actually entirely him. And then it turns out he's actually the brother of Tsukamoto's character. They're actually old bro- you know, brothers and experienced a horrific event as they were when they were young. Their father experimented on them uh, to harness the power of metal in ways that are never made explicit. You couldn't explain it. Um, and that Tetsuo was always better at this, but he suppressed his rage more, but he had more rage. And the, the film is essentially his rage coming out in increasingly violent fashion. I mean, these are, I, I it's probably obvious in the way we talk about it, but Tetsuo and Tetsuo 2 are both like hard or uh, violent films. Wait a second, wait a second, are you Are you telling me that a bunch of gangsters uh, kidnapping a child and then ripping off the child's arms at the wrist and then like waving the wrists around. That's that will get you a hard R these th- days. That, I mean, the, the, that, <laughs> you see, and that that this is the stigmatizing that goes on against gangs, harmless gangs in our cities, just going about kidnapping children, but not meaning them any harm specifically. But then a salary man who transforms his arm into metal while shrieking shoots his own child by accident, leaving only the arms. That's <laughs> that's what happened. I mean, the gang member was just holding the child up yeah. as protection. That's that's not a crime. His no, own father totally blew his child into mincemeat. <laughs> can we can we talk that, about that okay. story? The, the, the child <laughs> kidnapping that stuff. To them? <laughs> uh, every day I open the newspaper and there it is. Some ver- some version. I've done it two or three times myself. And you get and you get the early edition too, so so it's really happening. Oh tomorrow. god, who knows? You have yeah. to try and st- stop it. <laughs> it's enough okay. to make me just go mad, turn into the Hulk. Uh Jack, the the child kidnapping, you were telling us off mic when when 
he shot there's there's a scene where the the gangsters show up and they steal his kid. I don't know if it's the first time, the second time, the third time, whatever. But they they grab him and then uh he the salary man chases them around this kind of faceless, weird, uh, sterile Tokyo and they end up in a mall and they're like running around <laughs> the mall and you were saying that Sukamoto didn't get a permit. He just shot this shit in the mall and nobody there actually knew what the fuck was going on. Yeah, I have no idea if he got a permit or not, but he definitely, he did not breathe. Like they shot it in a real record store. He didn't brief anyone around about what was going to happen in the scene. And it is two guys running in and just snatching a child and running away. (laughs) So, so, uh, yeah, all those people looking somewhat concerned or maybe not concerned enough. I don't know. Maybe like no one really does much. So No, I'm, I'm... I'd say the vibe overall was pretty chill for a, a child <laughs> kidnapping by a nefarious character with like a leather jacket. With a mohawk. I mean, maybe they're just thinking this is like a new way of like sprucing up adoptions. You know, you get to go out <laughs> and just snatch the child. I like that. That makes me want to adopt now. Yeah, there oh, you go. God. Beautiful building your own family by just <laughs> running down, running into your local, like, FYE or whatever. There, no, I, yeah. I was trying to name a record store and there aren't any left. There's, there's <laughs> no. Sam Goody! They're all dead. <laughs> <laughs> Barnes and Noble. Oh, God. Uh, you don't, I mean, you don't need that anymore. You can buy vinyl at Walmart, man. That's all you need. Get your Bob Dylan records right. there. <laughs> ah. All right, well... Yeah, Tetsuo 2 is, it's something else, man. Like, it's its funny because looking at the ways that he uses the money that he has and the ways that he's not using the money that he has is hilarious to me. Like, I think about 90% of the money went to the Beefcake Army scenes, which <laughs> it looks like they're in this, uh, like the, um, it's the place where in, in, in Terminator 2 where the Terminator gets like melted by hot metal or whatever like it's that like a foundry okay like it's a hundred percent it's a rammstein video like yeah, this is yeah. their whole shtick laid out in front of them so it's just like a bunch of like shirtless guys who are muscular but not as muscular as you would think because you know you still got a budget you can't get the beef yeah they're picks. mostly wiry i would describe most of them like yeah, you know yeah wi- like you you know yeah you wouldn't pick a fight with them they look like they just don't care but yeah you know they're and they're not, all like, just like cakes. There's this bench pressing like giant metal cogs and and just like flexing in front of this like molten metal and it's it's fucking badass. It's so cool. <laughs> Which I don't think is the takeaway from this. I think I think the takeaway is, you know, you know, suppressing masculinity to the point where it overflows into a destructive force and you destroy everything around you. But uh my takeaway is uh dudes rock and beefcakes are cool. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is very much, uh, and we'll talk about it more as we get into Tokyo Fist, but I mean, Tetsuo 2 and Tokyo Fist are really a proto-fight club. Um, Tokyo Fist particularly is really, like, oh, yeah. it's so close to being yeah. Fight Club, and yet it was produced, uh, it came out a year before the novel came out, so it, you know, probably it came out close enough that I'm pretty sure, you know, Palnyuk did not see Tetsuo 2, or well, he may have seen Tetsuo 2, he hadn't seen Tokyo Fist, but like, I don't think they, you know, were specifically, you know, borrowing from it. But uh, David Fincher sure as shit saw these movies, I'm pretty sure. And yeah, it, it yeah. is very much about male reality versus idealization and uh, <clears throat> people suffering because of the gulf between those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, also Tetsuo 2 ends with a literally Tokyo being destroyed. Uh, yeah. City just skyscrapers torn apart, um, which definitely overlaps very heavily with, with Fight Club. Well, I, I guess I mean we can we can pretty much get right into to Tokyo Fist now. I think, um, which, yeah, I, <laughs> this is a movie where you're right. It's it's very similar to Fight Club in a lot of ways, but I can't help but but laugh at the idea of someone watching Tokyo Fist, especially that ending, and going, "Oh yeah, this is cool as fuck. This is who I want to be." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this one is. Uh... God, this is great. I mean, what's what's funny about this film to me is that um, it started off, Tsukamoto started with a script and it was kind of about the duality of, again, we're talking about kind of like, a, it was a guy who was going to be working a white collar salary job in the day, but he would get up every morning and train as a boxer. And, you know, it was one character. And again, that the film would explore this kind of schizoid element between this very hyper-physical training and then a kind of a subdued uh 
kind of urban lifestyle that doesn't really, you know, you don't use your hands, you don't use your muscles, you know, there's no physicality to it. Um, but the film would separate out from that and it would become two different, it literally would, almost like Fight Club does, that they become two separate men, one representing the physical, one representing kind of the metal or the urbane, and a woman in between them. And that becomes Tokyo Fist. And uh, interestingly enough, again, the the brother or the the other actor in this film, Shinya Tsukamoto, plays one, but it's uh, Koji Tsukamoto, his brother, who plays the other, who was uh, finally returning him to his, his first actor because I think when he was uh, like a teenager making Super 8 movies, it was his younger brother was uh, the star of most of them, um, who quit apparently like he was uh, uh, like working in one of the classiest restaurants in Tokyo as like the head chef. And he just quit his job and then hung out for like four months while I tried to find money for this thing. Um, so he could go and act in his brother's movie. And he trained as a boxer as a teenager and, and wasn't good enough, apparently, which I guess informs the character maybe because, uh, spoiler alert for Tokyo Fist, none of these guys are really good enough. At, <laughs> none of these guys are winners. No one's no. coming out of this thing doing really well. And that's that's a great through line for all of these movies i mean we we talked about like the destruction of yourself the destruction of everything around you but also sukamoto firmly establishes that his favorite thing to drive home directly into our fucking skulls is there's zero heroes at all no heroes everyone's a worthless piece of self-destructive shit basically yeah uh, it, it might look yeah. cool but at the end of the day you're just gonna be like pouring your own blood all over everything and that's the main yeah if you think raging bull is a gory boxing movie check out tokyo fist <laughs> oh no, god yeah, people don't just bleed when they get hit like a, <laughs> their nose turns into a fountain of blood that yeah. like covers the hallway of an apartment building yeah, it's Good like Lord. lone wolf and cub mixed with a boxing movie it really is yeah. i mean there's there's all these shots where the editing again is, is super frenetic and there's a couple of shots where they're just these like snap, like quick zooms into like holes in the body that have been made from being punched that just like burst open. And it's, it's intense. Shit. Very tactile. Yeah, mm. it is. It is. Uh, so yeah, this is another movie too, where obviously the, the male characters are, are self-destructive pieces of shit, but Sukamoto kind of gives us our, our first fully formed female character in one of his major films. And I love the way he sets this up because it, it almost sets it up as this archetype of like, oh, and she's the only like good, strong, truly pure thing here. And then immediately that gets demolished until the end where it just, you know, disintegrates into insanity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's strange. I mean, I, I think if you were to discuss like Tetsuo 1 and 2 and from an erotic impulse they're kind of homoerotic more than anything else it's mostly mm. men inter I mean yeah. the, the, and the conclusion of Tetsuo is explicitly homoerotic it's about two men joining their bodies to fuck the rest of the world to death <laughs> uh, which is uh, like on the homoerotic scale is somewhere like exploding at like a cartoon thermometer uh, like it's just all over the place um, this film is, and uh, it's something that kind of, I hadn't seen this film in forever, so coming back to what I was, it's it's quite an impressive element within it is, um, yeah, I mean, you could argue there's there's a feminist through line here, which is not something you might expect <laughs> from Tetsuo 1 and 2, the guy who made those, because this is a film about two men who are fighting, uh, basically trying, trying to win the affections of, of a woman, and um, and she carves her own path. She kind of realizes she's not interested in either of them, and she starts to do her own thing. Uh, her own thing, though, is is unusual. I mean, a lot of body modification. It starts with like a tattoo that everyone is like absurdly freaked out about, and I, I guess, <laughs> it, I mean, it's it. I've seen worse I see worse tattoos every single day. Frankly, um, it seems strange that everyone was so worked up about it. But by the end of it, she's uh, doing some pretty serious body modification. But it, again, it's, it seems to be a rebellion against social expectations and against the expectations of these two men that she would choose one of them, that they, you know, that the, the choices between stability and, and uh, kind of, you know, middle class comfort or, you know, raw masculinity. 
and yeah. she rejects both fundamentally and and also rejects kind of the the point of like she's not i don't think there's any point in the film where she's like i want children or we should settle down or you know there's nothing yeah. there's nothing like that in there well and um, the arc the arc leads you to believe too that the way that she starts to change and the way that she you know pushes back against both of these guys in different ways um, as she continues to modify her body and you know you start to think, oh she's coming into like her true self and figuring out who she is and all this and then at the end we find out that she's she's done all these things to herself she's you know it's not just the tattoos and and the the nose piercing she's actually like implanted metal bars big metal bars directly into her arms and legs and then she just rips them all out and bleeds to death so yeah, at some point it's just like of, uh, tetsuo's first scene Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so she, she thinks she's so we think as an audience that she's she's coming into her own identity when in fact at the end she's just like, no, none of this fucking matters. And then just literally destroys herself. I think I think it's it's kind of funny because um, Tsukamoto talking about the film says like he he characterizes Tokyo Fist basically as being a film about how men are worthless, <laughs> which yeah. is like a really harsh kind of, you know, kind of layout of it. But that's kind of what the film is. Um, two guys who, as storyline-wise, are effectively witnessed a girl they both loved uh, when they were teenagers. She's murdered by some gang of rapacious businessmen. It's like a fucking scene out of Joker. Um, you know, mm -hmm. like every Japanese movie bracketing in a certain kind of cult circuit has like basically a bunch of, uh, you know, business uh, suit-clad drunken businessmen out looking to rape someone. It's like just ultimate cliché. Uh, and they kill this woman. And, and interesting, actually, they kill her by dropping her onto a piece of rebar that's sticking out like a, a oh, yeah. piece of like, you know, so, so it's almost arguably, you know, you could almost argue it's kind of like the, the, the infrastructure kills her if these men were maybe driven insane by the city. Um, again, in the city, Tokyo plays a huge role in, in Tokyo Fist. Uh, unsurprisingly, I guess, considering it's in the title. Um, mm -hmm. And these these guys have, they, they both decided they would, become strong so they could protect women in the future and they both became boxers but one of them stuck with it and the other one turned away from it he, he eventually ends up selling insurance which is almost trying to sell <laughs> st sell stability to people um but there is no stability it's all kind of like a, a a thin veil behind a completely chaotic world where none of us are safe or nothing is assured, which I think is very much kind of like the undercurrent maybe of a lot of Sukumoto's films is that the city, um, kind of the city offers a veneer of safety and stability and organization and it's, it's buildings and it's streets and it's grids patterns and so on. And it's, it's kind of schedules and you go to work at this time and come home and you do this and that, but then underneath it's actually just kind of like a teeming chaos um, and in this film kind of captured the fact that his father their father dies at some point and then just kind of is whisked away like uh, it's, his death is like a weird you blink and miss it within mm -hmm. the film um, but anyhow they, they're both seeking to become protectors of women by optimizing their masculinity and then basically <laughs> they both treat this woman like shit and she just starts effectively testing her own metal in admittedly a in a literally destructive way or in a, you know kind of he could be viewed like that but i think more in a, you know if we if we view the film more metaphysically or more i guess allegorically that she is she's getting in touch with her own body separate of these guys she's not being you know, she moves outside of being in a sexual object whereas you know so many films kind of optimize women as being you know you know women are great because you know men like them um, this is kind of like it It pulls outside of that she shocks and horrifies them and she pummels Tsukamoto's character to a bloody pulp near the end mm -hmm. just because she can and yeah. breaks a ginormous horseradish in two in probably one of the funniest there's humor here and there in Tsukamoto films oh, I think that's yeah. just this incredible phallic imagery of this giant like it's a ginormous horseradish I I don't know much about how what size they normally are but that looks like a comically huge one and it snaps <laughs> cleaningly perfectly in in two and it brings back actually um talking about humor in Tsukamoto films one of the things I did actually uh I 
wouldn't have remembered again because as we talk about it's very difficult to remember what happens in Tetsuo because everything seems to be happening at once but at one point there's like uh, in one of the film's rape scenes anal rape scenes where where, where Tetsuo is being raped with metal or whatever there's like a zooming crashing thing of the camera firing up against a no parking sign and it's like just such a a weird juvenile insertion into the film Uh, but i guess that's what we're looking for in these films it's sort of there's this just chaotic frenetic energy these are not you know this is not carl theodore dreyer or tarkovsky this is an anti-movement almost this is something completely different just chaotic and pure energy yeah I, i think there's i mean there's definitely a lot of that too Whoa! Somebody drop a microphone. Not, not I. Oh, transforming into metal. Are we okay? Transforming? Is this our Tetsuo moment? My drill penis is rising. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say that you know it, it's kind of funny too, just how absolutely pathetic the men are in in Tokyo Fist, and there's this scene where uh, the woman that they're both going after. Um, one of the the guys, the the businessman, he's waiting for her in this like underground garage by a bridge, and he's waiting and waiting and waiting. Literally waits like twenty four hours. Finally, is able to catch up with her, and then is just like bashing his own head against a wall because he's so sad and pathetic, but also at the same time like trying to impress her. And it's just like it's hilariously fucking pathetic. Um, and there's also just it's disgusting and horrifying but the final boxing scene the final fight scene uh (laughs) one of one of our intrepid male heroes uh comes out victorious and then he celebrates by literally like exploding and bleeding to death in the middle of the ring so it's great the way he shoots it because it starts as like he's cheering and his arms are raised in victory and it's kind of from behind and he's cheering the crowd reaction yeah and then you realize the crowd are like horrified and the camera just kind of turns around to come to the front and you see his face is just mush (laughs) (laughs) just absolute ground hamburger it's yeah it's something it's really something uh, yeah, I think I'd say that pretty much wraps it up for round one of the uh, Sukamoto Fest. So <laughs> what what can I expect just abstractly for the next, uh, like more of the same for the next few? Uh, I would say this, things calm down a little. Chiller um, vibes. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, you can't keep making Tetsu over and over again. You would just, you would go insane, I think. Uh, but I haven't watched several of these in in a long time either so i'm kind of hoping they hold up uh, i think bullet ballet though you're going to be in similar territory uh, but like time we get to like vital vital is like much different kotoko yeah. is purely psychological people stop transforming into metal so that's mm. that's something <laughs> yeah i think visually you're still going to get a lot of this with bullet ballet but especially compared to tokyo fist i think it it, it takes it down a little bit so we're, we're going to ease you into some more chill Sukumoto, although it's Sukumoto. Yeah, for God's so. sake, don't, don't watch them all in a row. Yeah, <laughs> I couldn't. I split these out over three nights. I cannot fathom watching them, let alone in the morning. Just starting your day with these three movies yeah. is insane. Yeah. It's a lot, dude. Who, need, who needs coffee? You're like, oh, these are only 80 minutes each. Oh, I can oh, fit this in before 12. Yeah. Then realize <laughs> no. the psychological toll. Yeah, that's a good tip. Yeah, pretty soon Sean's going to be sticking like rebar through his ass cheeks and <laughs> running through the streets of Detroit. <laughs> I'm the Motor City Man! Yeah. Oh, man, can you imagine putting up a Tetsu, like I'd a Tetsuo probably, statue? What the- I'd probably be um, immune to COVID at that point. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, to, to my knowledge, uh, Tetsuo Iron Men cannot get COVID, much like cats and dogs. So that's good. All right, boys. Uh, well, we're going to wrap this thing up. Uh, if you are listening to the podcast right now, you need to do us a favor. Click on the link in the description. That'll take you to our iTunes page. We need your iTunes review. It's fucking important, man. Take you two seconds. Like, literally, it'll just open up the, uh, the Apple page on your phone, and there's a little thing that says, oh, rate this podcast. Give it five stars. And then if you click again, you can give us a written review. Please give us a written review. Write anything you want. Write, uh, Sean Glynis has a drill penis. Five stars. We would love to hear that from you. Reason is, is because uh, we're trying to climb the ranks of the iTunes charts, and the only way to beat the algorithm, much like 
uh, Tetsuo tries to conquer the machines, the only way to beat it is to get written reviews. So this is something you have to do for us. It's it's really the only choice. Also, I'm going to encourage you guys to check out the new standalone feed for caustic content that is available on Spotify, iTunes, pretty much anywhere you listen to podcasts. So go search for caustic content. Make sure you subscribe to that. We've got more new episodes of that coming out soon. If you'd like to tweet at us, at Optimism Vaccine is the place to do that. Or you can email us, optimismvaccine at gmail.com. And uh, Adam Myros is standing by, refreshing the inbox, waiting for all of your insightful comments, questions, anything else you got going on. Uh, he likes really long-winded relationship questions, so give those to him. Other than that, uh, we also have a Patreon that's active now, which, hey, our first Patreon shout-out. We have different tiers that you uh, subscribe to. Even if you just got a couple bucks, throw a couple bucks our way. That would mean the world to us. Uh, we also have, if you uh, subscribe to higher tiers, you could start having influence over the content that we actually do on this podcast. And if you subscribe to the highest tier, you could actually choose a subject for an episode. Very exciting. A lot of power in your hands. And uh, we have our, uh, our first person who has gotten to a tier where they get the Patreon shout out. Uh, so thank you to Paul Rohde for uh, being our first big donor. We appreciate you and everything you do for us. Thank you for supporting us. Be like Paul Rohde. Give us fucking money. We need it. This shit's expensive. It doesn't ah. pay for itself. Please help us. We're poor. Uh, Jake, last word is yours. Tetsuo! Thank you, Jake. Thank you.